But for this week, we are going to be in Psalm 13. And as we go there, I wonder how many of you, I know it's, a, it's kind of a cliche joke, so everyone in here can relate to it. That's what cliches are. Universally relatable, no cheesy. How many of you can relate to either being the kid in the back seat or having a kid in the back seat that on a road trip says, are we there yet? How much longer is it going to take? Are we there yet? I've got to go to the bathroom. You just went to the bathroom five minutes ago. I know, but I've got to go again. Are we there yet? There are large swaths of the Christian life where we are those passengers in the back seat who have really nothing to say but, are we there yet? How long? And that's exactly what David is praying in Psalm 13. That in a sense, the Christian life is a journey. We are on a road through this life to a promised land where our Lord is, where He has gone to set up shops for us and where we will be with Him forever. And He is walking with us by His Spirit through this life, guiding us into the next. It is a journey, but it's not an easy journey, is it? That we are sinners, surrounded by sinners in a world that is cursed by sin. And that makes life hard sometimes, doesn't it? It makes life frustrating sometimes. It makes life discouraging sometimes. And there are days where we go to bed and we say, how long? And there are mornings where we wake up and we go, how long? How much longer? Are we there yet? That's what David says in Psalm 13. Four times he's going to say, how long? This big idea as we read through it, this one kind of single idea that Psalm 13 is all about, is this. If you're taking notes, this is essentially my entire sermon in one sentence. That when trials make you groan, put your trust in God and rejoice in His goodness. When trials make you groan, put your trust in God and rejoice in His goodness. Let's read Psalm 13 together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, Will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has 
dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. It has been inspired by God's very spirit so that we might know what his good and saving will is. May he write it on our hearts so that we would walk in it to his glory. You notice in verses 1 and 2, David groans, how long? And that's what we're going to see in our first point. Verses 1 and 2, groan to God. Groan to God. And then we're going to see in verses 3 and 4, our second point, and that is, turn your groaning into praying. Turn your groaning into praying. And then we're going to see our third and final point in verses 5 and 6. Turn praying into praise. Turn praying into praise. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. We're considering this idea, groan to God, that when trials make you groan, put your trust in God, rejoice in His goodness. Groan to God. That's what we see here in verses 1 and 2. We see four times David is crying out, how long? Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? We took our kids to the water park yesterday. We were only there for a few hours, but it felt like we were there for only a few minutes. Time flies when you're having fun. But time crawls when life is hard. We can put up with something when we know how long it's going to last. Listen, it's only temporary. It's only a day. It's only a week. It's only a month. Anybody can do anything for a day, a week, or a month. When we know how long something is going to last, we can, in our own strength, put up with it. But trouble can be unbearable, can't it, when there's no end in sight? When we can't see the expiration date. Your endurance wears thin like old brake pads. We usually stand up under short and sharp trials, but long-term trials grind us down over time and just make us squeal. This is what we see in verses 1 and 2. And what you're going to see here is not spirit-inspired grumbling coming from David. What you're going to see is spirit-inspired groaning coming from David. And we're going to talk about what we mean in that distinction in just a minute. But consider David's groaning. We're going to see a four-step downward spiral, one step at a time, sinking deeper and deeper. Step one you see in the first half of verse one. He says, will you forget me forever? He says, God has forgotten me. We think if God remembered me, he wouldn't allow these kind of things to happen. That if God remembered me, he wouldn't let it go on like this for this long. But then in step two, the downward spiral continues. Not only has God forgotten me, but he says, God has turned his back on me. Literally, he has hidden his face from me. In the Bible, the hiding of God's face is an expression for alienation and cursing. And so he's saying, not only does it feel like God has forgotten me, but it's even worse than that. It's as if God has rejected me altogether. You see, this is how David is feeling in the moment of his trials. The spiral continues at the beginning of verse 2. Not only has God forgotten me, not only does it seem as if God has rejected me, but beginning of verse 2, or as if I 
am a failure. I take counsel in my soul and I have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long? When we consider why trials persist in our lives, we often are tempted to look away from God and become morbidly introspective. That we analyze ourselves and our lives and our hearts over and over and over again. We become obsessed with it. We've got to figure out what in me is causing all of this to happen. And we might even begin dredging up past or current sins. I know that I'm saved by grace, but has God really forgiven me? Maybe he's punishing me for something that I've done. Our thoughts can become dark and condemning and our hearts can become filled with sorrow and despair. And it can lead us to conclude as David does in the fourth and final step at the end of verse 2. I'm not ever going to see victory. I just can't win. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long am I going to lose? How long am I going to continue to fail? How long am I not going to see any victory? Incessant introspection inevitably leads to insecurity and anxiety. Looking only at ourselves and not to God, we think, I won't ever see victory. I'll never find relief or freedom. Sin, Satan, and death are going to win. It's one downward step at a time. David feels like he was about to collapse under the weight of unrelenting burdens that seem to have no expiration date. How long are we there yet? Is what he's praying. But as I mentioned just a moment ago, what we find in verses 1 and 2 is not spirit-inspired grumbling. What we find is spirit-inspired groaning. And the two sound awfully similar, but they're very different. Let me just help you understand what I mean by this. The Bible is very clear that grumbling is a sin. Consider Paul, Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling, that you would be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and Twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. To be blameless and innocent is to not grumble. To grumble is to cease to be blameless and innocent. Paul is borrowing from the language of Exodus here. He's referring back to that generation of Israelites who passed through the wilderness under Moses. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Moses called them, quote, a sinful and a deceitful generation. And he calls them that because they repeatedly complained about their hardships. They questioned God's care. And they wished they had never left Egypt. They would rather go back to slavery than to suffer in freedom with God. This is similar to what Jesus teaches in his parable, The Labors of the Vineyard. This idea of grumbling. You remember he hires some and they work a whole day and they make one denarii and then he hires some that work only part of the day and he pays those who didn't work as long the exact same amount and those who work the whole day go, wait a minute, that's not fair. The parable Jesus says each of them received a denarii and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Catch that word? They grumbled. 
at the master of the house. But the master replied, I am doing you no wrong. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Let me define grumbling. Grumbling is ungratefully begrudging God's generosity. Grumbling is ungratefully begrudging God's generosity to you. When I was younger, the gift that I wanted more than any other gift at Christmas was a G.I. Joe aircraft carrier. It was four feet long. You could land whole G.I. Joe planes on it. It had an intercom on it. It was amazing. It's all I wanted. I remember coming out one Christmas. My parents, as always, were very generous. There were all kinds of wonderful gifts, socks and underwear, (laughs) things you appreciate much more at 40 than at 8. Nevertheless, they were incredibly generous. And I opened one present after another, and I looked at my pile, and I noticed one thing was missing. I had no G.I. Joe aircraft carrier. And I sat on the couch, and I grumbled and pouted and complained, and I made my mama cry, and I made my stepfather upset. Because I was grumbling. Like a spoiled kid at Christmas that has received much but refuses to acknowledge the gifts, accuses his generous father of being stingy and unloving, and demands something different or better than what he's received, that is a grumbler. It's ungratefully begrudging God's generosity. That if God is sovereign, which he is, and if he is always good to you in Christ, which he is, then grumbling in any circumstance is essentially a sinful refusal to trust the sovereignty and goodness of God. That every time I grumble at my circumstance, what I'm doing is I am preaching a sermon to myself and I am preaching a sermon to others that says God doesn't know what he's doing. God didn't get this right. Either God cares but has no control, that is, he is weak, or God does have control but he just doesn't care. He's mean and withholding from me. And yet grumbling is one of those respectable sins, isn't it? We don't want to push too hard on those who are in difficult circumstances. So we go, well, I mean, it's understandable. Life's just really hard. It's not like they're murdering anybody. But is that how the Bible views grumbling? Just a respectable sin? I mean, not that bad, but I mean, kind of understandable in the circumstances. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.10. This is how seriously God takes grumbling. Once again, he points to the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. And he says, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Let me give you the Cliff's Notes version of what Paul's saying. You and I 
deserve to be destroyed by God for grumbling against God. It is not a respectable sin. It is high treason that calls the character of God, the word of God, and the promises of God into question. It is to blaspheme God. But groaning is very different. Groaning is not grumbling, even if the tone is the same. Both grumbling songs and groaning songs are in the minor key. They sound a lot alike. But their motivations are altogether different. And we need to make sure that we don't get them confused. Because I want you to walk away understanding that it is never to the glory of God to grumble. But it may very well be to the glory of God to groan. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul is halfway through almost to the end of his magnificent exposition of the gospel, showing us our problem, that is sin, the remedy, that is Christ and his righteousness, of union with him and freedom from the power of sin. And now we're in Romans 8 looking forward not just to justification, but to glorification. And yet, the path to glorification is a rough and bumpy path. It is painful. This is what he says, picking up in verse 18. Sufferings are the context. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here he compares the groaning of a believer to the groaning of an expectant mother. And the groaning of an expectant mother is never sinful. It is always hopeful. It is filled with eager longing. As our midwife said, yes, this is going to hurt like a big dog. But it's worth it. That you're going to get through this and on the other side will be a brand new glorious reality, and that for which you had only hoped you now see. That is but a small illustration of the groaning that we experience in our own life. That groaning is a faithful response to our circumstances that patiently endures trials while eagerly longing for God's redemption. Grumbling 
longs for circumstantial relief. Groaning longs for glory. When a grumbler asks how long, he feels the weight of sin and concludes that God doesn't care and isn't working at all. When a groaner asks how long, he feels the weight of sin, exact same as the grumbler, but concludes that God does care and that God is working for his good. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who called who are called according to his purpose. There is a difference between how the grumbler says, how long are we there yet? And how the groaner says, how long are we there yet? One questions God's sovereignty and his goodness. The other finds his comfort in God's sovereignty and goodness. I may not know how long, I may not know when we're going to get there, but I know that you not only have the map, but, you, but that you have created the map and that we will arrive where we're supposed to arrive exactly when you have determined us to get there. And there are no better options than the road that you have me on. And so David, in verses 1 and 2, is groaning with the creation. How long? But he's groaning with faith because he knows that God has an answer to the question. He's not questioning God. He's trusting God. He's not grumbling. He is groaning. So, brothers and sisters, don't grumble at God. Groan to God. Don't long merely for temporary relief but groan for glory. This is what we see in the life of our Savior. Then when you look at the life of Jesus, what you see is that Jesus never grumbled, but he definitely groaned. At one point in his ministry, Jesus said, just like David says in Psalm 13, O faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Mark 9, 19. Remember, as he was in Gethsemane, he had such anguish that he sweat drops of blood. He was under such enormous strain and experiencing such inner turmoil. He was groaning, yet never grumbling. And ultimately, God did hide his face from Christ. Psalm 13 is about Christ. And Jesus called out on the cross just as David cries out in Psalm 13, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in all of this, Jesus groaned and he never grumbled. He continued to entrust himself to his Father, patiently enduring the cross for the reward that was set before him. And what was his reward? Yes, it was exaltation, it was glorification, but it was also a people for his own inheritance. Why did Jesus groan, always trusting the Father, through temptation into death and beyond death? Because we were his reward. It's the church. It is a people for his own inheritance. And so what we see is in the wilderness, grumblers were destroyed by the destroyer. But at the cross, what we see is the destroyer is destroyed for grumblers. You deserve to be destroyed for grumbling. 
And yet for every single one of us who would turn from sin, who would turn from our own wisdom and our own devices and looking at our own righteousness, and yet turn to Christ with faith alone, empty faith, and trust in Him alone, then He is destroyed for you, for your grumbling. In the wilderness, grumblers were destroyed by the destroyer, but at the cross, the destroyer was destroyed for grumblers. That is good news for grumblers like me. But that's not the end of the psalm. Go back to Psalm 13. David is not only going to groan to God. That isn't the end of the psalm. It doesn't end with groaning. Groaning has a destination. It moves us in a certain direction. And so what we see in verses 3 and 4 then is David's groaning turns into praying. And this leads us to our second point. Turn your groaning into praying. That even though David's heart tells him that God has forgotten him. And that even though David feels in the moment that God has turned his back on him. David does not trust his own feelings. He understands, as we should, that the heart is deceitful above all things and that our feelings will often mislead us. What you feel is often not the way reality is. David is not trusting how he feels. He is going to trust what God says. And so he quickly turns his groaning into praying. And in verse 3, he says, consider. In other words, look means the same thing. Look, my three-year-old daughter, Eliana, right now, she loves to have undivided attention. If I'm talking to Kathy or Kathy's talking to me, she'll walk up to us and go, you need to stop talking because she wants our attention. Don't talk to mama. If you're holding her, she'll grab your face and she will turn it to face her. She wants your attention. She's saying, look, and that's kind of what we see here in the psalm. David is, in a sense, metaphorically, not because God is truly forgotten, but just for the sake of imagery, he is grabbing God's face, so to speak, and going, look, consider. And he makes three requests. The first is, look, and then he says, answer me. And then he says, I need you to give me light. All there in verse 3. David prays with the passion of a man who knows God. And that's exactly what he does. See at the beginning of verse 3? O Lord, my God. And then in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, he ups the ante in his prayer. He says in verse 3, I'm going to die. And he says in verse 4, my enemies are going to win. God is praying to, or David is praying to God on the basis of God's promises. God had promised to bless David and to be with David. No less than God's character is on the line in David's suffering and in, his, and in his enemies winning. So David prays on the basis of God's promises in the same way that Abraham acted on the basis of God's promises, willing to offer even his own son. See, author of Hebrew tells us because God had made promises. And if God has to raise his son from the dead, that's what he will do. But God cannot neglect his promises. It's the same thing that Abraham does when God tells him that I am going to destroy these grumbling people in the wilderness. And, and, and Moses prays. And what does he pray to God? No, you've promised. You made promises to these people. And God relented. 
David does the same thing here. My enemies cannot win. I cannot die like this. You have made promises. And David, trusting God's word more than he trusts his own feelings, goes to God in prayer and prays on the basis of God's promises. Oh, brothers and sisters, when our hearts are full of questions and it feels as if God has forgotten us or rejected us, we will be tempted to turn somewhere other than God, just as Adam prayed in the prayer of confession. This is why God said to the people of Jeremiah's day, My people have committed two evils. Evil number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Evil number two, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. They have rejected the fount of living water and they're digging wells for themselves that are dry. They're both evil. And we're tempted to do the exact same thing when life gets hard. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. God doesn't love me. God doesn't know. He seems to have turned his back on me. I'm on my own. Oh, brothers and sisters, look at David's example. When our hearts tell us that God is far away or forgetful, and we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, the first step of faith is to pray. Pray to the God who seems to have abandoned you. And when it feels like God is far away, that is when we need to pray the most. That's not when we need to pray the least. That is when we need to get on our knees, to get on our faces and seek God. We need to trust the promises of God, just as we see in James 4, 8, that if we draw near to God in faith, He will draw near to us. That we need to trust the promises of God in Jeremiah 29. That God says, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, you realize that the reason that God brings trials into your lives is to wean you off of this world and off of depending on yourself so that you would no longer have all of your heart invested in something that is weak and perishable and passing away, but so that all of your heart would be given to seeking to Him that is infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and able to care for you. Do you believe that? This is his promises. Seek me and find me. Seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. I am a God who can be found. I'm not hiding from you. I'm in plain sight. If you would just look at me. Jesus promised in Matthew 7, 7 and 8. As and it will be given to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Brother and sister, are you in a hard season? Does there seem to be no expiration date? Are you crying how long? Are we there yet? Have you turned that into prayer? Groaning will always turn to prayer. Grumbling will always turn away from God. So David turns to prayer. That's what groaning does. It leads us to trust in God with all of our heart because we've got nothing left to trust in. He is all sufficient. This is what we see in Jesus. 
He prayed all night several times during his ministry. He prayed in the garden before his arrest. He even prayed on the cross. Just listen to how the writer of the Hebrews describes Jesus' prayers during times of suffering. That in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ and you cry out to God in your time of need, you will be heard. I wish I had something fancier to tell you. Well, really, I don't. You're going, it can't be that simple. Our problem is that we overcomplicate everything. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another path. There's got to be some other techniques. Pray to God. Not with a laundry list. Here's everything I need, God. He knows what you need. You can ask him for those things. But go to him on the basis of his promises. You have promised. And I am going to hold on to you. And I am not going to let go of you until you make good on your promises. That's how his children pray. Grumbling leads us to reject God and to turn away from him. But groaning pushes us to prayer. We need to follow in Christ's footsteps. Turn to God. Pour out your heart to him. Verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 13 gives you permission to be a big, hot, steaming mess before God and groan in faith. You don't have to have all the right Christian answers. You don't have to be shiny and happy on the outside. Go to God. Be a mess. How long? But I know you got an answer and I trust you. You've promised. Those promises are mine in Christ. Groan to God. Pray to Him. Don't believe how you feel. Say to God as David does, you are my God. And pray knowing and believe that he sees you, that he knows you, that he cares for you, that he loves you, and that he is working all things for your good according to his perfect will. That your groaning turn to prayer. And then finally in verses 5 and 6, turn your praying into praise. It's one of my favorite lines and one of my favorite hymns. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. So what we see in verses 5 and 6, that his prayer turns into praise. That with the same breath he says, how long? He also says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. As David settles his heart through prayer, the Lord gives him the very light that he asks for in verse 3. And in that light, David's groaning turns to prayer and his prayer turns to praise. And we see three steps in David's praise. If verses 1 to 2 show us steps moving downward, then steps five and, or verses 5 and 6 show us steps moving back upwards. Step 1, David says, I trust you. I trust you. 
Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. He declares his confidence in God's character. The grammar here shows that David trusted in God at a specific point in time. You might picture setting a stake in the ground, drawing a line in the sand. As for me and my house, we will trust the Lord. And so he's able to point to a specific time, not an ambiguous feeling, but a point in time where he made a conscious decision to no longer trust in himself and the wisdom of men, but to trust in God and his wisdom. I have trusted in your steadfast love. David could point to the moment in time when his heart turned and he said, Lord, I trust you. No matter what's happening, I'm deciding right now that you are good and that you care for me and I'm going to walk in that truth. That's the idea behind that phrase, steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It means God's loyalty to his promises and commitment to his people. It's a covenant love. It's a loyal love. That when a husband vows to love his wife until death do us part, that is, in a sense, chesed. It is steadfast love. Not because he always feels love for her. He might even be upset with her at times. But if he is a good man, he will be committed to her and faithful to her and will care for her and will love her until death do us part. He will keep his promise. He is loyal. That, in a very earthy way, gets to the heart of God's covenant love. That God has committed himself to us like a husband commits himself to a bride. And David trusts in God's committed love. He's prayed to God in verses 3 and 4 on the basis of God's promise. And now God's promises are the foundation of his comfort. I have trusted in your steadfast love, in your loyal love, in your promise-keeping love. So he says, step one, I trust in you. That's his praise. Step two in his praise is not just I trust in you. It is I hope in you. I don't just trust in you, but I hope in you. Look at the second half of verse 5. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Because he has trusted God, he also hopes in God. The first part of verse 5, do you notice the tense? Looks backwards in time. But the second part of verse 5 is looking forward in time. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And that word salvation, it doesn't just imply forgiveness of sins, though that's foundational. It also implies complete and total well-being. David believes in a whole gospel to a whole person. That is what salvation is. It's wrapped up in this Hebrew idea of shalom, of once having a frayed and torn apart fabric, all of its threads being brought back in a perfect relationship to one another again. That's what he's talking about, that God will meet every single one of his needs. Not only will his sins be forgiven, but he will receive comfort for his heart, quiet for his mind, healing for his body, complete safety, and perfect peace. That's what David means when he says salvation. That God does not just save our souls. He will redeem our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our spirit, our senses, our thoughts, our emotions, our relationships. Everything that we are is what God aims at redeeming. That in Christ, He is reconciling all things, not just your soul, 
all things by making peace through the blood of the cross. So David is looking forward to that day when, when Jesus proclaims, Behold, I am making all things new. Which, by the way, is going to be the theme of our Advent season. We're going to look at Revelation 21 and 22. I am making all things new. David hasn't yet received God's promises in full, just in part. But with the same breath, he is asking in faith, how long? How long till I get to taste your promises? How long until total healing? How long until I'm no longer encumbered by sin? How long until I no longer have to groan in a, word, in a world cursed by sin? How long? Are we there yet? Oh, I can't wait, is what he's saying. That he looked forward and he rejoiced to see God's certain salvation in the future. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that it's always been for God's people. That's why Peter writes, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me sing that again. Preparing your minds for action today. You got to move, you got to act, you got to live in a world as a sinner, surrounded by sinners in a world cursed by sin, yet redeemed by God's grace. Preparing your mind for action and being sober minded, not haughty, not unwise, but wise, guided by God's word. He says, Set your hope not on this world, not on your body, not on your money, not on anything in this world. Set your hope fully, entirely, altogether, nothing being held back fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is that where your hope is? Real hope. Hope that can see the future according to God's promises will give you joy instead of dread, even in the worst of trouble. And that's what we see in Psalm 13. Hope. In God. God may not change your circumstances in this life, but if your hope is staked on God and His Word, you will be filled with joy through your circumstances and what is yet to come. Oh, are we there yet? How long? I can't wait. I don't want to sit here anymore. Get a little squirmy. That's what David's saying. And this was the path of our Lord Jesus Christ. That his entire humanity and his incarnation was from cradle through a cross to a crown. And that is our path too. This right now is cross time for us. That will be crown time. That's where David is. He's still asking how long, but he knows God has an answer and he can't wait for that day. And so that's why in step three, in verse six, we've seen, I have, I will trust you. And then he praises God. I will hope in you. And finally, in verse six, I will sing to you. Those who trust God and hope in God cannot keep it in, but must tell other people about God. They must sing to God. That's why Christianity is the only major world religion in the world, or the only major religion in the world that is a singing religion. You ever think about how weird it is that we come together on a Sunday to sing together? 
Why do we do that? There's something altogether countercultural about what happens in this room on Sunday mornings when God's people come together to sing. It's because it's the kind of thing that can only be produced by sovereign grace. Given to us by a God who knows the beginning from the end and will guide us to the end safely. I will sing to you. How can I, how can I do anything less? That when the clouds are lifted, David saw blessings that had been there all along. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has, past tense, so important, dealt bountifully with me. Not he will. David is looking past tense. Yeah, in those days that were hard, in those days where I groaned, how long? In those days when I groaned, are we there yet? That is where God dealt bountifully with me. Believer, do you believe right now that if you are in Christ Jesus, God has blessed you with every, not holding anything back, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus? It is yours. And do you realize that the wages of sin is death? And yet here we are. He's given you yet another day and another breath and probably for many of you a warm shower and clean clothes and a hot breakfast. He has given you good friendships and if you look around even more than that, He has given you fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ because He has dealt bountifully with you in Christ. You deserve death and yet He has given you life and breath, the very breath you grumble with and He has given you every blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He is so good to you. And David sees it. In the moment he couldn't see it, but he prayed for God to give him light, and as the light lifted and the darkness faded, he could see it. Oh, look at God's goodness. That God's bounty is nothing less than all of His generosity that He pours out into our life day by day. It is not only every good thing in our life, but it is able to see with the eyes of faith every bad thing that God will turn for good in our lives. Even if we don't know when and we don't know how, He's promised. And so when David's heart was heavy, and when David's eyes were dark, David was blind to the good things that God was doing today and the good things that God had stored up for tomorrow. Oh, but when his groaning turned to prayer and he fixed his hope on God and remembered that his trust is in God, he sang for joy at God's generosity. Brothers and sisters, this is what we do when we come together. Not just because it's a Sunday morning activity, but because it is to remind us that all of life is singing praises to the God in whom we have trusted and the God in whom we hope. Because He has dealt bountifully with us in Christ.